Uh, what's up, everybody? This is Evan, Degree Studies, on Twitter, the Two Minute Hate Podcast. I recorded a podcast over a week ago with Catherine D, default friend, and I meant to get it out sooner, but because of the travel, I sort of screwed up my editing schedule, so I'm sorry this took a long time. I was very appreciative of Catherine for coming on. She has a lot of followers and lots of people making demands upon her time, so I thought it was very gracious of her to, to come on. So without further ado, I'll just get to that conversation. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Two Minute Hate. I'm very excited uh, to have with me as a guest this week, Default Friend. You probably know her from her Twitter account, Default underscore Friend, or maybe her Substack, defaultfriend.substack.com. Uh, she's a great writer and tweeter and just like a great uh, cataloger of things related to the Internet. Um, so, Default Friend, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, sure. So I guess my first question was about um, sort of the way you think about things and the way you categorize like internet trends or clicks. I'm curious if if this kind of categorization or like seeing trends come and go, was that a way you thought about the world even pre-internet? Or when the internet came around, did you find that you sort of had unique insights into this new weird space we were we were all occupying? Um, you know, I think I was kind of doing it beforehand. Um, so I, I had like an interesting professional background. Um, went to film school, and then I worked in entertainment for about a year. Um, and I moved to, to Texas. And, you know, the entertainment industry is one of these industries where you really need to live in one of two hub cities, right? Like you hear all these rumors like, oh, you can live in Atlanta, you can live in Austin, but that's not really true, right? So yeah. I ended up ha I ended up having to, I was unemployed for a minute because I didn't have any real skills. Um, you know, it was like be a, be a wedding videographer, which I wasn't going to do. Um, and, you know, actually now that I'm saying it, that sounds so fucking smug, so I'm so, <laughs> but I just, I didn't want to do it in my early 20s or work at an ad agency. And I ended up working at an advertising agency. And I started realizing because once I had to put myself in sort of that advertising headspace, it was easier to, and like thinking about audience segments, uh, it was easier to start see, seeing trends emerge. Um, so uh, my my internet related writing uh, started because I uh, did an internal newsletter about trends um, and I would specific, specifically focus on internet history and internet trends and things that like, normies would kind of overlook so like an example of this was like um you have to like design audiences and we would do like young adult fiction um and we'd get like like weird quirky books sometimes and it's not necessarily intuitive that like uh you should add like wolves right as a tag for something you know as an interest for your audience segment or things like that right so i started naturally sort of like grouping people into these like kind like kind of like more obscure uh like, you know, groups, right, to, uh, for, for the purpose of advertising. Anyway, then I, I, I switched, uh, I switched gears and I started working in tech. Um, and that sort of sharpened, um, sharpened that perspective even further, uh, because now I was sort of helping to build the tools that, uh, we were all sort of living in. Um, and that between sort of like a lifelong, uh, 
you know, journey of being terminally online, it, it, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely become more refined as I've written about it, but um, that's, that's been my trajectory with that. That's, that's super interesting. I, it makes a lot of sense to me that you worked in advertising. I guess one question I have is my impression of advertising, though this may just be from ignorance, is that like maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the sort of audiences that, you know, if you're selling soda, if you're selling laundry detergent, when you make up audience segments, it seemed like there could be social categorization that was distinct from political categorization. Like when I was growing up, if someone said like, oh, here's a, um, I don't know, here's a middle-class guy. He works in New York and commutes to Connecticut. Uh, he might be interested in this project, but it wouldn't necessarily, part of that, uh, like stereotyping his little subculture wouldn't necessarily be political. Whereas it feels like today and on the internet, uh, the sort of social category and the political category are inextricably linked. Am I am I right that that's sort of like a uh, that the internet has caused that, or is this just something I made up? No, I think that's real. Um, I sort of think, you know, I, I think that a big mistake people make um, when talking about like the politi political political, <laughs> I'm stuttering here, but the the polarization is a, a better word. But, uh, you know, a mistake people make is like, there's a lot of things that aren't necessarily political, but they're like politically coded. Um, so I'll often use the phrase like right wing coded or left wing coded. Um, and it's like, there's no political intention, but I think like the way things have sort of separated out is like you have the, this, a big umbrella of like right wing coded. And that might include things that are legitimately right wing. You have a big umbrella of things that are left wing coded. Um, and, because like the coding is very visible, uh, people sort of make the mistake of thinking it's it it is actually political, but it's 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 not. Um, and you know, and I also think like part of that is like people cluster in these groups, and I, I refer to them as fandoms. But you know, uh, there's also there's all different ways to refer to them. Uh, the writer John Esconis refers to them as like alternative reality games. Um, James Polos at Claremont says swarms, um, and these, if you think of them as like little bubbles, right? And they're all in, uh, they're under an umbrella of right-wing coded or left-wing coded. These little bubbles will like group together. And even though they're like, they're not necessarily, they don't necessarily believe the same thing. They'll create a, like a, a mass or a hive to be stronger because on their own, these individual cliques aren't really powerful. And depending on like what side of the divide they fall under, right? They'll end up arguing for that side. Um, so it creates this weird thing where you have someone like, for example, like Amy Therese, who was at some point like an Orthodox Marxist, who is on the right wing side because she's like a, you know, so-called dissident. And it's it she ends up fighting for like, uh, you know, whatever the, the right wing coded uh, side of an issue is. Um, and it, it makes people say like, oh, well, you know, what does the right really believe? But it's like they're, they're not looking at it in the correct way, I think. Right. Like there's definitely a difference between like actual political movements and then this weird sort of organization system that the Internet has uh, somehow created. Yeah, I think I I face some of this challenge in my own life because I think I've gotten more right wing as I've gotten older, but I'm 
I'm from the Northeast. I'm sort of like a failed intellectual. So I think like a lot of my aesthetics, when people meet me, I, I think a lot of people meet me and assume I'm, I'm quite left-wing and then are disappointed and or betrayed when I turn out to be more conservative. And I think a lot of right-wing people just think I'm sort of like effete and gay, uh, which is true. But I, I just sort of feel like <laughs> I shouldn't, I, I don't know, I don't want to purposefully make people uncomfortable, but I also, I don't want to, like, I don't want to, you know, do false advertising of the self, but I also don't want to reconstruct my personality just because of like political opinions that seem like they need not bear on aesthetics. But there's like complicated signaling going on. And I've seen that I I often lead people to feel like they've been misled. And, and I feel like I can see on your uh, Twitter timeline that that happens to you somewhat, too. You know, you get a lot of stuff where people are like, you're interested in X or Y, you're friends with so and so. Like, what are you trying to tell us about your political identity? And I think you maybe say something similar to what I've just said of like, I'm just living. <laughs> I'm just trying to be me. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, you know, I and people hate this answer. I I don't know anything about politics, right? I don't I don't vote. Um, no, and it's not a it's not a protest or anything. I like I literally don't. I don't have the education. I'm a high school dropout. I went to film school, which I consider, a, you know, a vocation, a vocation, really. Um, so I don't know anything about history. I don't know I, my media literacy, um, I think is good in some set. You know, obviously, it's good enough for me to be writing about some of the topics I write about, but in terms of like actual issues, I just like, I mean, I don't know. Like, like how could I in good faith say that I'm on the right or on the left? And I don't, I don't know that I could define either term. Like if someone asked me, gun in my head is like define right wing or left wing. I'd say, well, uh, that, you know, the right, be you know, believes in a hierarchy and the, the left doesn't, you know, like that's, as, that's about as far as I could take, take you. And when I say like, I am a political people will then say like, well, clearly you're, uh, you know, like the right will say I'm an entryist, um, and the left will say like I'm trying to pull like the wool over their eyes and sort of like you know the, the, another version of being an entryist, right? Because I I'm not afraid to talk to people across. What is the an right. entryist? Sorry to interrupt. Sure, uh, people think like I'm trying to infiltrate more radical spaces to make it more centrist. Uh, and I mean, this, and this all comes from, cause like, I'll talk to, I'll talk to whoever shows me respect. And, um, you know, this is maybe like in poor taste to admit, but like, that could mean like a tanky, right? It, or it could mean like some weird, like, uh, like xeno feminist accelerationist. It, it could mean someone on the far right or someone who at least identifies as being on the far right. And then you talk to them and they're kind of a lib, you know, it's, it, 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 it's just like, I, I'm not gonna, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know, like, I, right? Like, I have nothing meaningful to say about politics. All I, all I can do is say like, oh, this person's nice. Well, fuck it, I'll have a conversation with them. Who cares? Yeah, I'm very, uh, I don't know that I'm a politeness supremacist, but I'm very pro-politeness. And I think that like the general, uh, general manners on the internet are so poor that just by being like slightly more considerate, you can, you can talk to people because it's like not that common experience, I guess, for people to just be sort of, I don't know, cordial or warm or whatever. I mean, I, I understand why people are in, in conflict, but I, I still think there's something to be said for just being nice towards people you don't know, 
Um, and I, I certainly think, at least here on the Two Minute Hate, you know, we're respecters of people who are uh, not politically engaged and not really seeking to be. I think there was some, I forget what the publication was, but some uh, two scholars released today a big paper about how uh, every election, like the least informed and least politically engaged people decide the election. And she was very mad about this uh, because, you know, they're, they're the votes of these uninformed, like low engagement people end up mattering a lot more than like high engagement people. But I, I think one thing we've seen with the internet is like the, the average level of political engagement of the average American has gone way up. And in correlation with that, everything has gotten worse. So I don't see why we would believe that sort of like political engagement is a good. It seems like it's a net negative. I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you because like the way people engage with it too, isn't like, is, no, no, no. Again, like, I don't know, know enough about the history, but it like, isn't a political engagement, right? It's like often, um, you know, an expression of like, again, I say fandom, you, you may also be able to say like consumerism. Um, you know, another way is like, uh, the same way people engaged with, uh, TV shows when people were watching TV, uh, even local gossip. Like one really interesting thing I noticed in my personal life was like, I love my mother. My mother's a saint, but she's a huge gossip, just really shameless about it. And I have have childhood memories of her like going around the grocery store and running into five, six people and telling a different version of the same piece of gossip about, you know, Marie so-and-so. And it was, I mean, but it was like a real form of entertainment and a real form of, you know, she's from a immigrant uh, diaspora community and it was, it was how people connected with each other. And, you know, everyone got their turn being collateral damage and you know, it was never anything very serious. Um, but that kind of small talk, um, that kind of gossip and that kind of like concern with, did, you know, did you see so-and-so at church with, you know, whoever, right, has been replaced with like, um, did you hear about what happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband? And then sort of drilling into like some weird, I don't know what, what she said. Some I, I haven't been following the story. It's some bullshit about QAnon or whatever. Uh, and it's like it was just so much healthier when like that. What she was saying was just like, you know, speculation about who is sleeping with who. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Like um, we're so kind of disconnected, and all we really have is is politics. Like we're not even really watching the same TV shows. Um, that like. We can't, that's the only form of connection people have with one another. Yeah. And I, I have a couple of reactions to that. I think the first is, you know, for my, for our parents' generation, you mentioned your mom. I think I can even remember my mom telling me when I was a little kid that one of her friends was really into politics. But what that meant in 1995 or whatever it was, was that like this woman was running for the school board and knew all the local council members and was like doing shit in this really small geographic area. It didn't mean like this person is intensely following national politics and owns, you know, a a certain canon of left-wing books or a certain canon of right-wing books. It meant like she's actually engaged with these local offices. But now if you said someone's politically engaged, it would mean like they're following national and or like global politics. Uh, and so it's sort of like a, it's almost better to say they're like obsessed with a worldview more than obsessed with politics. But I think that is captured somewhat by your, your concept of, of fandoms. I don't know if you want to, uh, 
elaborated on all, but is that sort of the distinction that like a, a fandom is, is passive? So no, I don't think, I actually don't think it's passive. I think it's participatory okay. in a different way. Um, you know, it's, it's like when someone, the, the type of work that's going into it is, is sort of, is sort of different. Um, and you know, there's, there's many, there's, there's many different, there's many different ways to define it, but I'd say like the differentiation is like someone in a fandom is like showing allegiance in this very specific way. There might be like a consumer buy-in. Um, they're creating kind of like a tra you know, transformative works. So this might be like podcasts or articles or, you know, I see hot takes as being roughly equivalent to fan fiction because often they're very untethered from reality. Um, and there, you know, there, there's all sorts of, there's, there's usually some kind of uh, fan object that's helping guide this. Right. So there's, there's all these different, uh, there's all these different things that don't like when you think about it, aren't really political. Whereas I think the truly political person has some kind of, you know, set of beliefs that's, that's guiding them. And there's like a vision for the world that they're interested in. And that's like one way of being political. And maybe another way of being political is, you know, taking stock of current events because you're trying to understand the world in this very specific way. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people, what I think is really interesting is, you know, a lot of people who like, for example, talk about uh, politics the most on like Twitter. Um, and it's not, it's not exclusive to Twitter, but Twitter is a great example. I mean, you see this on TikTok too. If, you know, gun to their head, if you, if you ask them like what specific policy, policy positions they hold, they might be able to say like, one or two really big ticket ones like they're you know like for example like they're pro-abortion right but they don't like they don't even understand like the the shades of what that that means right like okay so is it just like um you know abortions up to when uh you know what are the nuances that of that belief like what specific policies how you know what would be included like there's all these things that they they're just not thinking about because it's not again it's not, not like an inherently like political thing um so I, I mean, so I'd say that's that's what the differentiation is. I, you know, I don't think fandom is about like viewing things as entertainment necessarily, because fans, I mean, do incredible amounts of labor. Um, it's a very participatory thing to be a fan, um, but it's it's the the goals are, are are kind of different and the texture is different, even if that difference can be sometimes difficult to articulate. Well, yeah, that's that's very interesting. I was thinking with this with this Pelosi thing, and you sort of mentioned that you you haven't been following it super closely. I haven't really either, but I I just wanna mention sort of a dichotomy I see and see if it, how it works with your concept of fandom. Like the thing I notice is that, you know, the way the, the battle lines are pretending to break down is that basically like the responsible people, the liberal people, the mainstream media people are saying, this was a random violent attack and it's disgusting to pretend it's a conspiracy theory because then you you don't show empathy to, I guess it's Paul Pelosi, who was the victim of this attack, and you must show empathy to him. And the sort of right-wing side is saying, no, it was like a gay lover, it was a QAnon thing, and so we don't owe him our empathy. And I, I'm sort of interested in that. I mean, I have no assessment of the conspiracy, but I would just feel comfortable as an observer being like, Oh, it may have just been a random violent homeless attack, but like I don't feel responsible to identify with or empathize with 
him in any event. Like, a, I, I don't know, like a, a homeless person breaking into a rich person's house. I, I guess it makes me feel bad, but like, it's hard for me to conjure Paul Pelosi as a real human being. Maybe that's bad. Maybe that's unchristian of me, but like, I think it is possible to both not create an alternative reality, but not identify with this story in the way that some people want you to. And it, I guess, is that kind of identification with the subject or empathizing with the subject? Is that an element of your concept of fandom or are these slightly uh, different sort of concepts? No, no, no. I think that's, I think that's a great, a, a great point. Uh, because like when you identify with these, with these characters, I mean, one, they really are characters, right? Like they're not, um, you know, they're not like public officials sort of in the same way, right? They repeat, they, they become like elements in certain these stories that people are creating together. And in some cases, like really experiencing like real catharsis through. Um, I think it's like interesting, like, you know, some some Zoomers are like really burnt out on politics, um, but they're still sort of like experience, like they're still, the, the models of behavior are still the same. Like they might do it with like a, a, a media property, um, but they also like might make themselves these characters, right? And you see that a lot on TikTok where like, it seems like the only way that certain people can process emotions is by making themselves a character in a piece of media. And it gets mistaken as narcissism, but I actually think it's like, they're so used to relating to the world through media that they have to like then become media. So here's, a, that that might be, I, I might be like really fumbling my words here. Um, so I'll give an example. Like all those videos of people like crying in their car, right? That gets like, oh, they're, they're doing that for attention. Um, but I was thinking about it, it's like, maybe it's not that they're doing it for attention. It's that like, they're so used to seeing emotion mediated through a screen um, that like the only way that they can work through whatever they're feeling is to mediate themselves through a screen. Um, it might feel like a far leap, but I feel like that's sort of like the same kind of mechanism that's happening with like Paul Pelosi not being a real person, but instead like this character, this this narrative that people are following and, and building on and, you know, imagining new interpretations of. No, I think I, I wonder if this is similar, but there have been times in my life, I don't know, like maybe a breakup or something where like, I know what I'm going to say. I've thought about what I'm going to say a million times and gone over it in my head. And in going over it, I don't feel particularly emotional, but when the other person is actually there, uh, something about their presence makes the same sort of words, you know, that I've been thinking about all day or all week, suddenly it's very emotional to speak them. And I wonder if that's sort of what the people crying in the car are experiencing to some degree, like something about uh, an abstract viewer uh, or something about an interaction that they're imagining is emotional in a way that just like stewing on it independently is not. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I think that's a, that's a, a good point. Like they're, it, it, like they need to, they need to put it out somewhere because if you just, if it, if it stays in, then it's your, you know, your interpretation of it, it's going to get all warped. Yeah, I definitely, I have also had the experience um, and I don't know if this relates, but I, I visited my friend at uh, University of Wisconsin 
when I was still a senior in high school and he was a, a freshman at Wisconsin. And they have a crazy Halloween every year. Um, and, you know, I was 17 or so whatever. But th there was a moment where there was like a crowd of thousands of kids um, on this one street. I think it's called State Street. And people were starting to, like, throw rocks at buildings and stuff. Uh, and that was just a moment where I definitely got wept up in, like, the mob psychosis. Like, I, I don't know why I cared. I don't know why I was into being destructive. But I was, like, applauding people throwing rocks and being like, yeah, let's let's break shit or whatever. And then, like, I couldn't understand reflecting back on it. Like, why was I captured by that uh atmosphere like it doesn't comport with you know my values or, or anything i had been feeling so i wonder if i mean obviously like the internet you're not in physical space with other people in the same intense way as like a a riot or a crowd type thing like i'm describing but is there something similar of like it allows you to sense the unhappiness or the anger or the the sadness of thousands of other people all at once and something in that can sort of strike a current in you and take control of you? Totally. I mean, I think that, I think the internet is very seductive in that way. I mean, it definitely like creates this detachment. Um, you know, I was, I was talking to a friend of mine about like body dysmorphia and I realized like the internet plays this weird trick on you where if you're on it too much, you like, you know, like your textual identity or even your avatar is obviously going to be slightly different than your physical world identity. And so there'll be like this gap, right? And then when you return to the physical world, you'll feel this like dysphoria because you're not like you might identify more with whatever, like the anime girl who's your your avatar and whatever, right? Um, mm -hmm. And I think I think that kind of like detachment um, also like creates where like you get caught in these moods that don't necessarily like match up with who you are in the physical world. And so you end up doing things in this like cyberspace context that aren't really like the you that you're more familiar with. Um, and then some people enter this space where they're, where they're just, they're so detached that they end up doing things in the physical world that are influenced by these moods that they get sort of swept up in, in cyberspace. Um, and, and I think that's, that's how like some, not certainly not all, but like some like school shootings happen, right? Like you get sort of so in this weird, this weird zone that you just, you just detach. And like, maybe like you aren't necessarily someone who's capable of violence, but it's, you're, you, you've been splitting yourself too much and the cyberspace identity possesses you. Um, you know, I think it, it, certain eating disorders might manifest this way. I mean, there's all sorts of weird things. Um, and again, like once again, I don't know if I've, I've, I'm being the most articulate tonight. So hopefully, hopefully I'm, I'm making sense here and I'm not going on too many non sequiturs. No, I thought so far it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think I'm glad you you brought up the the topic of, of school shootings because I think one of my favorite things you've written is the the article you wrote about school shootings and nihilism. Um, and I guess could I guess it was just maybe it was perhaps the the school shootings in the news. But I'm curious, had you been? I guess it was after Uvalde that that came out. Is that right? You know, I'd written it before. Um, oh, okay. Weirdly. Yeah, and it, it got it got published a little later. It was supposed to be for one publication, and I thought it the timing was just really bad. Um, but I've been doing, like, research on Adam Lanza, 
And I mean, he was just, he, mean, he was so nihilistic, but also, uh, you know, we could talk, we could talk to the word blue in the face about guns. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who says like, well, guns are meaningless in this debate. They certainly don't help. Um, but like that, his whole existence was in cyberspace punctuated by, uh, you know, a, a two hour DDR stint. But otherwise he wasn't eating. He wasn't seeing sunlight. Um, he was really just living on AIM and in forums like that. That's significant, right? Um, so yeah, that's, that, that was, that was what, what inspired that piece. Just like there's all these things that are just feel so obvious that we like refuse to acknowledge and that we're all kind of aware of. Um, and I think like this sort of getting sucked into cyberspace, like part of that is nihilism and part of that is there's nothing that the physical world is offering these people. Um, and it, it if, and for more like, let's say like normies, like, quote unquote, like they, they experience the same thing, but maybe in like a more benign manifestation. And I think it makes people uncomfortable to equate these things. Like, yeah, like broken people will express this through violence, but uh, you know, people who maybe, you know, it doesn't even foreclose on the, the possibility that they're evil people who are expressing it through violence. But you know, the rest of us, it might be like drinking a bottle of wine after work or like exercising you know, to blaring music until, you know, the point of exhaustion or sort of just like creating this routine where we're not really feeling anything anymore. Um, it's, it's like, it's like, what else is there? You know, what, a, what, what else are we, are we going to be engaged in? There's really nothing. Right. Yeah. I think that, um, I mean, that piece of yours, which I only saw after Uvalde, but it, it inspired a lot of, of thinking in me. And I think, I was thinking about how, like, if I said to any group of people, like just surveyed Americans, if I said there's no real sustenance, like in the online space, like you need what a person needs, like to, to feel whole or feel happy, like you can't find it on the Internet. I think most people would agree with me. And then if I then said, but nevertheless, we're going to spend more and more of our lives on the Internet sort of inexorably, and no one has a plan to, like, reverse that shift. I think most people would also agree with that. And I think that part of what your piece brought up for me is that, like, we aren't even trying to square that imbalance. Like, I think everyone is, is sort of vaguely aware in the broadest sense of why moving more and more of our life online is bad, but, like, partially because... People are making money from it, partially because it makes certain commercial processes easier. There's like not a lot of incentive. I, I mean, people will admit like, oh, yeah, it's bad for mental health. We'll like increase counseling or whatever. But people don't seem to take it seriously uh, at the scale of the sort of implied social problems. And I'm not totally sure why that is. I mean, I guess the easy like left wing answer would be like, uh, it's just capitalism. Like if it makes money, you can't fight it. But uh, I don't know. I think it's, I, I think everyone is addicted to it. Everyone knows it's not really healthy or sustainable, but we don't talk about that that much. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think part of it also is like, for me, at least the conclusion, and you know, this is hard, this is hard to say because like this, provokes an emotional response and it's not something that could be like really like practically expressed and they, I, you know I don't know what sort of like how this would manifest in policy but like 
no one wants to hear that they don't have that they that you know there is such a thing as too too much choice right um and you know during covid i think there's this real renaissance of sort of like these like i guess like paleo conservative and neo reactionary sort of like influencers who are railing against you know the 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 tyranny of uh infinite choice or whatever um, and this was really appealing to people um one because it's like edgy but two because like there's some truth there um but you can't really from like a non kind of like i don't want to say contrarian but like non kind of like edgy vantage point say like we shouldn't have unlimited options and and these uh constraints on our lives are actually like very helpful um there is such a thing as like the world being too big um it feels like condescending i think i think people are very insulted by that notion um and you know you can take that to like far off extremes like you know maybe not everyone should be literate like obviously like that's like a, an absurd kind of <laughs> extreme version of that but like i do think there's there's it, there are there is like a serious kernel of truth to that like you you can't be anything and actually that's that's good right like uh, people be, people drown in that um but you know no one, no one wants to hear that and no one wants to discuss what that looks like you know saying like okay not everyone can be anything they want um you know the only way i think we really talk about that is like you know that is only true because of like systemic oppression or you know class whatever you know like but it's maybe true in a, in a in a different way um and it's 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 a very uncomfortable topic and i i don't i don't know what i make of it either i mean maybe maybe that's not no, it, but i think i think there's something really important in what you say and i think it connects to sort of meritocracy discourse because i i think in a society where no one does you any favors in terms of constraining you so you do the responsible thing in any given moment then like the most self-disciplined people will obviously thrive in this context. And I feel like I'm from a family where people have really good levels of self-discipline and I don't. And I think in some ways this explains our political differences because they're just kind of like, well, freedom is the best. And like, if people can't make the best of freedom, then we have to like help them or educate them and I kind of feel like I want to say, like, you know, like if they started selling Xanax at the CVS, like my life would be ruined. Or at least like I'd face a real challenge to not immediately uh, become a drug addict. And like, that's the type of policy change that could conceivably happen in my lifetime. And like, is it great that, you know, I can't get Xanax at that CVS, but here in Virginia where I am now, I can get booze. Like I've sort of figured out uh, I've sort of figured out how to live in a world where like booze and food and certain things that aren't good for me are, are always available. I'm working on it. But like, to me, the idea that the state would be like, well, we're only going to sell booze on like Friday and Saturday. Cause there's a lot of people like Evan out there who will like impulsively drink too much if it's there every day. Like I would sort of even appreciate that and certainly would not feel like my toes were getting getting stepped on. I remember you've been on um, Emmett Penny's show, Exhaust, and he had a, a guest once who's a, a Marxist academic, I think, I'm forgetting his name, but he said he thought Twitter and the internet more generally should be turned off during the week and only turned on 
on the weekends. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's the best policy idea about this I've ever heard. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think there's, 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 a, I, I totally agree with that. Um, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's plausible. Um, I, I think there's been several like interesting attempts to sort of regulate the way we use technology. Um, there is a, uh, I think it's called Wyoming Catholic College where they, you know, they, you can't just surf the web there. You can't have a cell phone. You have to use a landline. Um, and like, you know, if only like if we could implement that in schools, right? Like that, I mean, that's a pipe dream, right? Public schools are a mess. There's no, you know, there's no way that we're going to get kids off their cell phones in public schools. But like something like that, like healthier usage, that would be a great start. I think a lot of when people think about tech, I mean, it's usually an issue of censorship and privacy and both of those are incredibly important, but there's also like this additional layer of like, well, we can recognize like people like chain vaping is bad, right? You know, like maybe other sure. sort of like binge binge usage of things is also bad. But it does seem like our society is really optimized to sort of wave the white flag to these things. Because I've been present for so many conversations of new parents where they're sort of like they'll spend 20 or 30 minutes talking about the horrors of the idea of their kid having an iPhone. But the conversation always ends the same way, which is like, but I need to know where they are and everyone else at school has one. So sooner or later, they're going to have one. So it's like people, people who are even like pretty successful, maybe self-disciplined people seem to feel like totally impotent to resist the technology in any like functional or long-term way. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's an interest. That's an interesting thing because it's like, I don't, um, I don't like totally disagree with them either because like the other thing is like, like kids who, when, like, when I was growing up, like kids who weren't allowed to watch TV are, are, are weird. Like homeschool kids are weird and they have a tough time integrating. And like, it's actually, you need to, like, you need to be on the same page as everyone else. But then what happens when like everyone else is on this kind of like this functional page? I mean, it, it, I think it is a, it, it is a hard problem and it's not, it's not as simple as just like they'll deal with it. Um, you know, I've interviewed hundreds of people about their internet usage. I usually interview like people who are like, uh, internet addicts, right? If such a thing exists. And you know, the people have sort of been able to break out of that. Um, their saving grace has been uh, a sports team or, uh, you know, something that gives them meaning that has like a physical tax attached to it. Um, and something like that maybe could be like a first step while we figure out the regulation piece. Um, like, you know, maybe there is a there is a future where there's like better physical education in public schools or like, you know, there's there's something. I mean, the, the problem is the problem is so is so deep. Uh, be, being as sedentary as we are is a, is a huge component of it, too. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny the example you brought up because when I was growing up, both my mom and one of her sisters were very anti-TV and, like, fought having a uh, – and we made the exact same argument to my mom. It's like, Mom, everybody else watches The Simpsons. We haven't been allowed to. Like, this makes us – uh, socially inept or whatever. And it, it's funny at the time I was so unsympathetic to my mom. Like, how could she think 
PB was bad, like it's totally normal. Everyone has it. Like, why is she being such a fuddy-duddy? And I think now about the internet, you know, if and when I have kids, I will be a much more extreme fuddy-duddy than my, my mom ever was about TV. So it's a very, you know, it's a very dramatic story of me becoming my parents. I guess that happens to everybody, but on this particular technology issue, it's funny because as a kid, I was so convinced, like, I'm cooler than my mom. I won't be like this when I'm older. Uh, and now I'm much more extreme about it than she was. But I guess we'll we'll see how it goes when I actually have kids. Yeah, it's it it's hard. Um it I yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know I don't, I don't know what the what the answer is. Um because I you know I also think like I don't think these things are totally bad either. Um like I, you know I, I in in another life I, I was I don't want to say I was a successful creative. That sounds good. But, you know, like I, I, I did pretty well for like someone who, um, you know, wanted to like I, I went to school for, like I said, film um, and uh, also also studied theater. And I, you know, I did pretty OK for someone who was interested in those things. And I don't think I would have been able to do very well at all had I not had Internet access. Um, so like there's, you know, there's there's certain parts of it that I think are, are beneficial. But then, you know, the other side of the coin is true, too. Obviously, like we've been discussing it also ruins people. Um, and it's a really difficult balance to strike um, because often like these protective measures do, you know, not only do they make it difficult to integrate, they also like shelter kids from culture in some ways. And you need to make a like real concerted effort to make sure that they're exposed to things. But, you know, how else are they going to explore it? Like there's no there's no FYE to find new music and there's no, you know, blockbuster even to find like an old French film. Right. And you can't really go to the theater. Uh, what do you, you know, what are you going to do? Right. So it's like not having access to that stuff, I think can really uh, stifle kids. Yeah. I, th I think what disturbs me most fundamentally is not that um, it's not that there aren't good things to it or that there aren't individuals who have found a way to have, a healthy relationship with it. It's more like what we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is like, it seems like technologies get invented that totally change like the nature of society and social interaction, even in ways that are potentially like uh, psychologically problematic, socially problematic. And the response of our society and the state specifically seems to be like, yeah, we don't know what this is gonna do but it was invented and consumers like it. So like, we're not really gonna have a conversation about whether or not we adopt this technology or how we do. It's just like, if people like it, it's going to be adopted. And I, I think that's the, the quality that really strikes fear deep in me because like, I think we could come up with worse things than the internet, you know, or, or maybe the innovation that I'll be truly horrified by will be something on the internet but I just to see like how, you know, pornography is handled and sort of attempts at regulating pornography uh, and how sort of ineffectual or partial those have tended to be. I just feel like we're going to invent something that we really uh, want to put back in the bottle at some point. But we're going to realize that, like, we have no experience at that. We've never we, we don't really even attempt that uh, with all these other inventions. So, like, we're not going to know where to start. Yeah, I mean, like, isn't that the case with porn, right? Like, 
Yeah, that's we definitely to... how I feel about it. Like the the conversation about whether or not it was okay seemed to just get totally obliterated by it's it's almost like if you can make something easy enough technically then you can just make the conversation about whether or not it should be allowed sort of irrelevant and i'm i'm worried about the number of things that will you know move into that category as we go forward yeah i i, I think you're right i mean i think there's a lot of stuff that people are just like aren't thinking about the impacts but beyond these sort of like shallow fear-mongering uh, you know, sort of talking points like, you know, like TikTok, I feel like I, I there's lots of things wrong with TikTok, but let's like really talk about like, you know, what it is that like, what are those things? It's it's like I, I kind of I hate libs of TikTok because I feel like they it cheapens uh, a serious thing, right? Like, it, it, like, you know, for fuck's sake, like the issue isn't like some gay agenda or whatever is on TikTok. The issue is, is like it's changing how people relate to themselves. Um it's incredibly, it, you, you know, I think the, the privacy concerns and the data scraping concerns are legitimate. Um, you know, it's accelerated an already, you know, pretty difficult issue of self-diagnosis, uh, which isn't helped with consumerized medicine, right, which is kind of kind of what we're living in right now. Um, you know, it, but it's like it always falls on these very superficial, like, oh, my, my kid's just staring at their phone and also, like, there's there's you know, trans people on it. Like, who gives a fuck? That's not like, there's so many deeper issues that like the, the sort of surface shallow issues would be, you know, those would be solved if, if we, we had a deeper conversation about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, that's something that I never know. I never know quite what to say about because I, I certainly think there are instances where, um, the sort of problem that people seize upon, the social ill that people seize upon is actually like a second or third order effect of some uh, deeper problem. And like, it's very difficult to get people uh, to talk about it. The, like I always say with, in regards to gay marriage, and this is sort of my weird idiosyncratic Christian view of it, is that like, if straight religious people had kept marriage like a really intense obligation uh, where like adultery was illegal or something and like, you know, it was very difficult to get a, a, a no cause divorce and stuff like that. It's like marriage might have not even been attractive to sexual minorities because like if it's such a insane commitment and legal pain in the ass, people might have just said like, yeah, like the tax benefits aren't worth it. So it's like. By the time you get to this second conversation about marriage, it's it's like from my sort of Christian perspective, it's like the institution was already uh, hollowed out and made something secular. And then by the time that happened, it sort of made sense for minorities to say like, well, since it's a fake secular thing now, shouldn't we get it too? And it's like at that point, it's like, yeah, there's no reason. You can't suddenly argue then in 1995 or whatever with the divorce rate hitting 40% or whatever, you can't be like, yeah, we take marriage super duper seriously. So no, like it's obvious that you don't take marriage seriously. And so you're gonna lose the argument. And I think a lot of things are like that. Like I, I and to make it broader, I think there's a lot of instances where like social conservatives are sort of lazy or silent at like the beginning 
of some important institution crumbling. And then later when there's an issue that they find particularly irksome, whether it's, you know, gay marriage or trans people or whatever, they get, they get their dander up, but it's like, they've already sort of sat idly by while a certain type of sexual culture or social culture has set in. And so people kind of know that they're hypocrites, if that makes sense. No, I think, I think you're right. I think, I, I, I think that's, you know, that, that, that's a good point, right? Like if that's, if that's what, you know, your conception of marriage is right. Like you can't, like you can't have your cake and eat it too. Like you, I think a lot of people struggle to pick a lane, um, with what these things mean to them. Um, and there, again, there's like this fear of, uh, defining things too narrowly. Um, right. Like, you know, if, the, if, if that's what you, you know, I don't like, I've, I've always struggled to understand, like, if, if that's not what you think marriage is, then, you know, maybe the answer then is like marriage is, is religious and it, it shouldn't be recognized by the state in, in that way. I mean, you know, it's a more libertarian point, but like, these, I, I think people get stuck in these these ruts, and they they don't want to they don't want to be too uh, prescriptive. But then, like when an outcome that they don't like comes about, suddenly, <laughs> suddenly they're changing their tune. Yeah, yeah, I think there's a lot of people who because there was like if if you're if you're not like romantic about any of these concepts, yeah, there is a really simple libertarian solution that's like. Uh, religious institutions can provide whatever form of marriage they want and the state will recognize civil unions for all people. But it's like social conservatives did insist like, no, the state has an interest uh, in, in adopting this religious conception, but it's like, okay, but you're a, you're like a fallen secular society now. Like, what does that mean? Uh, you know, it's a little weird. So yeah, I think it is a, a want your cake and eat it too. I guess, you know, we're we're having sort of this uh, dark conversation. One of the things I wanted to ask you was, was the internet always going to be like this? Was the nature of the technology and what it could do inexorably leading to sort of the the things that we've done with it? Or do you think the history of the internet is contingent and questions like, porn, how social media is arranged, like, could those questions have been answered differently? And then we'd, we'd have a different internet and sort of be looking at different social impacts, or are we always going to get to this point? Um, I mean, like with the commercial internet, I think this is sort of like, you know, the logical conclusion. There's, there's things we could have done differently for sure. Um, but you know, once, once, once we monetized and once we lowered the barrier of entry, um, it, you know, it's how else, right? Like how else could we have, have gotten here? There's, I, I think to avoid the present day internet, um, you know, it should be much more difficult to use. Um, it, it, things shouldn't be so available. I mean, that's, a, that's a big part of it. Um, and that, you know, that means many different things. I, I think people underestimate, um, the impact that just like adding one extra step has on things like, um, you know, a lot of people give, give up, right? Like with like porn, for example, um, porn's always been easy to find online, but it's a little harder to be a porn addict when it takes a long time for the pictures to load, or you need to, you know, you need to know how to find the rabbit hole to fall through it. Right. There's, or even like, you know, forget the internet, like, 
you have to go buy a physical magazine to, to look at it, right? All these little no, yeah, things the, like add up. The tube sites clearly seem intended to be frictionless in a very deliberate way. And yeah, I do remember from the early days of porn, like being a teenager, <laughs> like clicking through pages and identifying my age multiple times. It's like, yeah, you get you get pissed off and frustrated and maybe sometimes give up. And now, uh, you know, I guess like the UX, they call it, like they know so much more about that, how to make it, um, how to create like the perfect dashboard for an addict, basically. Yeah, and that's I mean, and that's what they want. Um, and sort of everything is like optimized for addiction. I think like even social interactions between I mean, this isn't a new point, but like social interactions in between individuals uh, are are optimized for for addiction, right? Um, and uh, you know, it's it becomes very easy to confuse just like dopamine hit with like love or friendship, which is really scary. Yeah, I think it's, um, I definitely, <laughs> there's an old, uh, there's an old Hannibal Burris joke where he was talking about his own Facebook addiction and he was talking about the feeling of, he was like, at first I just like that, uh, I'd see like 45 likes, but then I needed to go in who and see who gave the likes. And I would think, yeah, Jeff would like some shit like that. And, uh, <laughs> I've, I've definitely had like that level of specific feedback where like, I'm going to make this tweet. And if this person likes it, that'll show me that like, not only is it a good joke, but like people in this ideological camp are okay with this joke, even though it might offend them on, on this basis. And like, that's satisfying to me. And yeah, I, I, you know, sometimes you catch yourself and you're just like, man, this is, this is like zombie shit. I need, <laughs> I need to touch grass as the kids say. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's that's super real, right? Like, you know, it's it's not enough that 100 people like your tweet. It has to be the right 100 people. Um, and there's all, you know, there's all sorts of permutations of, like, getting in your head about that. And I, I've, defi I've definitely been a victim of that kind of thinking. Yeah, it's, it's a hard thing to know how to navigate. Because I think on the one hand, like, I want to take the opportunity of the internet uh, to like reach out to people that are thinking in a way that I admire to maybe have them on this podcast or exchange writing or whatever. But like, I am also trying to be super aware of like, you know, these interactions you have that simulate friendship, as you said, like they are not in fact friendship in any typical way. And so you have to be, respectful or okay if the other person uh i don't know views it in a transactional way or, or doesn't think about you at all i mean it's it's just hard to manage the psychology of this this novel space i think especially because like i'm a very social person and a very friendly person like i like making friends in in real life and it's very easy for me to to slip into thinking i know people that i really don't know um, and it's, it's sort of like it's an really embarrassing weird. thing. Yeah. I mean, this this is something that, like, I've been thinking about a lot lately. Like, you know, if, if you, like, if, you know, if you Zoom with someone, right, for, let's say, like, 10 hours a week or something, like, do you know that person, right? Like, like I, you know, at what point, at what point does, like, digital interaction, like, what amount of digital interaction equals, like, 
whatever unit of physical interaction. Is that possible? You know, can, can digital relationships be real? And, and a part of me thinks like, yes, like, um, you know, I'm, I'm in a lot of like group chats with people where I feel like you know, I've then gone on to meet them in real life and the friendship feels solid and genuine, but there's something like, like there's, there's some, it, it makes me realize there's some component of relationship building that has to be like purely projection or in your imagination and kind of like abstracting that and realize and realizing that is, is kind of scary. Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, I, I think that some early advice I got in, in a career and like, it's so true, but it must apply here. Some somehow is some, some boss told me they're like, if you're having a difficult issue with somebody, the, um, if you can go over to their desk, go over to their desk. And if you can't see them in person, try to call them. Like the last thing you want to do is, is email them. And it just is totally true that like, if you're physically in front of someone, almost everyone, I'm sure there are like psychopaths that it doesn't apply to, but it seems true of almost everyone that like their manners and their willingness to meet you halfway improve dramatically like in person. And they're still considerably better on the phone than over uh, like recorded text, like an email. And I don't know if that's like hormones or neurotransmitters. I don't know exactly what, but like I've definitely, on getting that advice, I've definitely had the experience of like being in a tiff with someone that was sort of spiraling over email and then finding a way to get in physical space with them. And it's been resolved like almost immediately. And so like there's some, there's some magic about human presence. Um, but obviously sometimes on the internet, we don't have the opportunity to do that with, with friends yeah. or with people we don't like. You know what? I, I agree sort of, I agree, I agree for the most part. The thing that's puzzling to me is like the situations where like it really does start to approximate physical space. You read these like memoirs from people who were doing like these text-based role plays in multi-user dungeons in like the late eighties. And it's like, it like their imagination is so powerful that it like they are like they don't need the pheromones there to, to have romance right it, like it's it's and it i just can't make heads or tails of it because like i know it's real and i've experienced maybe not again like maybe not to like that extent but like versions of it um you know like i was saying with my friends in group chats and it's like there's just something there that just like i wish I mean, maybe people have written about it and i just don't know about it right there's just there's some other like sixth sense uh, that enters in human relationships. It's so interesting. Well, do you think that, um, do you think that everyone can do that given the right context or that there are particular people, because speaking of imagination, you know, when I watched that, um, that catfish television show, I mean, maybe I should knock on wood and not tempt fate, but like often on seeing people like build these relationships in their mind when all they had was a voice and a profile picture i often think and, and perhaps naively but i think like my imagination's not good enough to just go off of that like i couldn't have built something uh elaborate and grand out of that little information and so in a way i'm sort of and it makes sense that it would happen to you know like teens and stuff because that's when your your romantic imagination is is most powerful so right think, and i think Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. And I think like that's sort of also like the mechanism in which we're like 
you know, uh, teenagers think they're like in love with fictional characters or like not just teenagers, like anyone sort of deep in a fandom ends up believing that. Um, like there's just so much projection involved in relationship building. And you're like, what makes it healthy or not tends not to be how much you're projecting, but rather like how mutual the projection is. Yeah. Or like if what you need to project onto them is comfortable for them to indulge, like, is that, you know, sustainable for them or not? Um, yeah, it's, that's another thing I wonder about generationally. Cause I, I do think like with certain things, and I don't know if this makes me lucky or unlucky, but there's definitely like, uh, you know, I feel like growing up so much of my most significant, uh, real life was just in normal life space. And so the degree to which I could get pulled down into like internet bullshit, it seems like there's a cap on that just based on how I grew up, but I do worry with younger people. It's like if their first friendship, if their first love, if they already think those things are, are starting online. Um, I mean, I met a kid once and I was just talking to him as a friend's neighbor's son. I was just asking him how he liked school. He said he hated school. I said, Oh, do you not like the people there? And he was like, no, all my friends are from CSGO. Like I don't like anyone at my school. And like, he was saying it, as if it was not a sad or embarrassing thing to reveal, but like, it made me worry for him. Um, that, you know, he seemed to be saying his only important relationships, uh, were like from gaming and his, his real life didn't really offer him anything socially. But again, he did not say it, you know, in a self-conscious way or in a, like, he felt bad about it way. He was just saying it like it was, it was nothing. It was normal. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm of two I'm of two minds about that. Um, there, there's part of me that thinks like, if that's all you have, that's really bad. But it's if if it's like you need you need it to escape into something, it could be a saving grace for a lot of people. Um, you know, I don't I don't think I'm not totally worried for people who have that outlet. Um, but I'm worried for people where it's it, like I'm I'm worried about a situation where like that's all people have. Right. That's that everyone's in that boat. Yeah. I mean, obviously I was, I was doing a huge amount of assumption making because it was just a very brief conversation with this young man. But what, what I struggled with about it, if this makes sense, is like, he didn't seem like a weirdo. Because uh, in other words, I think we can all imagine the kid where like, you see them, maybe they're, they're sort of awkward vibe or like the way they talk you could sort of think like this person may not have friends if they go to like a small high school and if they can find friends on the internet as opposed to just no friends like that's really good but I, th- I think what sort of shook me about this interaction is like this seemed like a kid who would have no problem having real life friends if he wanted to he was just sort of telling me he wasn't interested in that and like I couldn't understand that because uh, my assumption was like, obviously, real life friends are so much better and realer. Surely you want that, too. And he was kind of saying, no, that's that's not how I see it. Uh, and I couldn't really connect. Yeah, with him. I mean, but, you know, I'm just being an thing, old guy. A weird thing there is, too, is like some sometimes people feel this way because it's like you could sort of skip ahead in intimacy or at least the illusion of it. Um, and people just don't want to earn 
that level of relationship with people. They don't want to go through the bullshit and they feel like they could just filter out the people who they would need to get to know, which I agree is like incredibly problematic. Well, yeah. And I, I think you can do the churn much faster online than in real life. Like we've probably all known somebody who gets in really close, intense friendships. And then there's like a falling out. And then maybe a few months later, the person picks like a new person to be super close to that they're going to fall out with. But there's, there's some delay in that process because like the, the sort of human carnage of it takes some time to sort out. Whereas like on the internet, you can sort of at any time be like, Oh, this is my favorite little reply guy deputy. And then like, if he pisses you off, he can be replaced by something pretty similar, like immediately. So if you, if you're Which a person is so scary. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, like, a lot of people are probably prone to, like, you know, all of us are not uh, naturally born great at dealing with the fact that relationships are two-way, that, like, you have to give and take. And I think on the Internet, you are, like, afforded the opportunity in this artificial space to actually attempt to take and not give. And, like, you can do that more sustainably. Like, maybe what you're getting isn't real but you can sort of be, uh, you know, you can be more, more selfish or, or less giving or whatever. Yeah. You, I mean, you, you definitely, you definitely can like the, the less friction there is in a relationship, the more, and the things that you could just say, right. And like, maybe people will believe you and to, to call back to catfish, right. Like that's a, you know, an issue there, right. Like people just say, I love you, but what, like, if you're, if you're lonely, like, you know, what, is, what does that mean? Right. Like, what does I love you mean in that, uh, in that situation? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's almost like this reminds me of something with, with drinking. You, you know, I was in a fraternity in college and like, I always really liked that drinking seemed like a way to uh, fast forward intimacy in male friendships, but you definitely had to be careful with it. Cause it's like, Maybe you get drunk with some guys and there's some, maybe you get in a fight or something happens and you feel like bonded to them. But there are also guys who will get drunk and say they love you and call you brother. And then when they're sober, like it won't mean much. So that's almost like a, it's similar to the internet in that way. Um, yeah, that's, that's a great analogy. Um, I, I, I mean, I do, I, American culture in particular is like filled with these sort of like shortcuts to intimacy and then, and then, you know, I, it, I would say drinking probably is better than the internet. Um, <laughs> right. Well, maybe, I don't know. It's, it's very case by case, but yeah, I think, I think that's, that's a great, that's a great point to bring up. Well, yeah, I'm definitely into the idea. I like the internet conspiracy that like social media and online life is a conspiracy to lower the fuck rate. And at least with booze, you know, people get together. Like it, I mean, maybe they even shouldn't, but it does result in people sleeping together, you know, like cigarettes. It can be an aphrodisiac or whatever. And the internet seems like the opposite of that, but I guess people meet on there too. Yeah. I mean, people, yeah, people definitely uh, DM slide. The question is like, how often does that, and you know, like how often does that end up like you making like custom porn for some rando, right? Until like it's boring <laughs> and that, you know, and how often does that become a, a sustainable, nourishing relationship? 
Right. Yeah. No. And again, it's like, this is the sort of thing I was talking about before with like, you're, we can be Johnny come lately's about problems. It's like, I can talk down to that, but it's like, I'm sure there are a lot of people who aren't even on the internet who have totally uh, like deviant transactional, weird sexual relationships. So it's like, you know, the problem is us, but the internet sort of emphasizes certain, certain bad qualities. So I, I think, um, I've, I've had you on here for, for over an hour now, so I want to be uh, attentive to your time, but maybe as a last thing, I was curious, just, you know, is there anything on the internet, any social community, any click, uh, or anything like that, where you've seen any swarm, any fandom where you've, you've thought like, wow, this is particularly healthy, or this is doing a particularly good job of giving the fans, the swarm members, something with more sustenance hold on to. Are there any online communities like that or are they all similarly sort of vacant? No, I mean, they definitely are. Um, I haven't worked out the language to justify why I would pick the ones that I'd pick uh, because they're kind of surprising. Um, but I will say I tend to think that any group where there's a genuine shared belief um, and, or, you know, even if it's something like a, a niche hobby where people are genuinely in it for like, for that thing, right. Um, you know, like a less incendiary example than the one I, my knee jerk one is like, like the puppetry community, right. Like anything where it's like, you're only in this community if you like this thing, or if you believe this thing, um, those are the, those tend to be the healthiest, obviously like all sorts of weird drama pops up and it's again, you know, it's like, this isn't, uh, a rule that's, you know, true hundred percent of the time, but generally like if there's a, I guess if there's a barrier to entry, right. If the barrier to entry is high enough and you stick around then those communities tend to be the healthiest and on, on the internet, I've seen it in some like very surprising bizarre i never thought i'd say this about this community uh places but um yeah i don't know it just kind of is what it is and you have to figure out what are these people doing that makes it work uh that other people aren't in a sort of like hobby community like puppetry will they manage political stuff by just saying you don't talk about that here we talk about puppets or do they sort of manage political differences effectively somehow it, de it depends like you know i follow some like one-of-a-kind doll communities pretty closely um and like sometimes these little like these little niches like they do get political depending on the type of person it attracts but sometimes it's just like you're so busy with the craft that it just doesn't come up um and i think that's kind of like the best case scenario uh that it's like the filter is just that strong like it's like Maybe you are super woke and into puppets. I mean, it's funny. I say this about puppets, but the real world puppet community has kind of gotten out of control, right? And it's actually, it actually is kind of bad. But it's because it's like a, it's a theater community. But you know, for the, for the most part, like anything where it's like you're engaged enough in the craft that it can overrule the petty political shit or like the activism impulse is good. If it's too easy to get involved, that's that's a problem. If they well, need like a skin in the game. This is what's so strange is that if I think about my own family and my own family is definitely not like politically dysfunctional. Like I think most people besides me are on the same 
page and we're good at not uh, ticking each other off. But what I do remember and what frustrates me is it feels like in 20, I don't know, in 2007, if uncles and aunts and, and my brother and I and my mom got together for, for Thanksgiving, it seemed like politics might come up, but there was so much more that we were interested in talking about, like so much more that people would have placed high priority on, had more passion about, and like maybe a political disagreement would come up, but it would just be one of, you know, 10 or 12 things we were going to have an animated discussion about. And now it's like, I can't even remember what those things were or how we convinced ourselves they mattered as much as politics. And now politics is like much more front of mind. And I, I feel like the internet did that. I mean, there's, there's other factors, but that's, that's how it feels to me. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely, it definitely did in some ways. Um, definitely the, the version of the internet we're on now. I mean, social media, I think, did it more than anything else. Yeah, and I think I think part of my frustration is that this effect is real for people, even if they're not uh, participating. Like, I, I can, there's sort of an intermittent argument about how much Twitter matters. But, like, I can tell, like, I think I'm the only person in my family who's really on Twitter. But it's like, when they talk... I can see the way Twitter discourse is like informing their political opinion. So like, I don't know what the mechanism is. Like, I don't know how it travels. It's the media. It's, it's, uh, it's digital media. It's because Twitter is ground zero for journalists. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think it's, yeah, that's sort of my, my ongoing uh, frustration is that like even people who, you know, because especially older people in my family, it's like I want them to be free from this deluge. But even if they've made the correct decision to not have a crazy Facebook account or not go on Twitter, it still all gets to them somehow. Um, yeah, you know. again, like, you know, there's no sort of like local concerns, right? It all, you know, and people aren't even really watching TV. So it all just becomes like, whatever, you know, whatever is on the news. And that's, that's, that's one of the biggest components of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always, I'm always trying to get my mom to turn off NPR so she doesn't get sent into a anti-Trump rage spiral, but with intermittent success. Yeah. I, I know. That. I know that feeling very well. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hope uh, for people, we, we bring it around to, if not a positive note, at least, you know, some takes with some, some modicum of, of optimism or whatever. But uh, Pat, default friend, I just want to thank you again so much for, for doing this. It's always really interesting to get your insights. And I know uh, my listeners will be will be gratified to hear it. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. No problem.